The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Spectators Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we will be opening the doors of perception. My guest is Ashley Ward, whose new book is Sensational, a new story of our senses. Ashley, welcome. Now, most of us have, a, to excuse the pun, a kind of common sense idea about what our senses are and how they work, and we know there's five of them, and that's that. Can you tell me what, what you set out to do in this book in terms of problematizing or complicating that picture yeah well thank you very much first of all for inviting me so i guess the senses are so central to our existence that we almost sometimes forget that they're even there in a sense you know we 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 see things and we don't think about how we see them we we hear things and and don't think about the process by which we register sound and so on but the picture is so much more interesting and so much more complex than that once you take a deep dive into it, and I think really what started me off on this particular path was really thinking about, in my case, I have worked extensively with examining animals, for instance, in the context of science, and wondering how they perceive the world. And it was really looping that back around to think about how we perceive the world that really started me thinking about this book and about this project. I mean, that, that question of how pe- people perceive the world, how animals perceive the world, I mean, I don't think you mention it in the book, but there is that famous essay, you know, what would it be like to be a bat, Thomas Nagel's <laughs> philosophical thing. I mean, is, you know, as someone who works in the field, who's works on animal senses, who can we, could we ever know what it's like to be a bat? Can we understand or transfer in some way our, our individual qualia in, into other animals? I don't think really we can. All we can do is try and be open-minded enough to admit the possibilities that are there. Even if we take examples that are more close to home, like um, dogs, for instance, or cats, our companion animals. You know, we, we might throw a ball for a dog, a red ball, and then look in wonder when the dog struggles to find it without ever particularly thinking about the fact that dogs can't really see red. Or, you know, we might wonder what the cat's sniffing at when we've we can't smell anything, we might think they've lost control of their senses for a moment. And yet they live in such a different environment to us and yet we, we somehow we always transpose our experience of the world on top of theirs. But really part of my job has been to try it in, insofar as ever you can, get into the mindset of these different animals. And yeah, like I said, that has been a fascinating process. And really also get into the mind of also other people because really to illustrate these things to the students when I've been running these ideas through lecture courses to to get this across to the students I've had to use human examples to put things into context properly and even then you realize that everybody experiences the world in a very slightly different way it's something I mentioned in the book that not only do each of us perceive the world differently but you or I perceive the world differently not only to everybody else who's alive, but anybody else who's ever lived. And that is a quite mind-blowing thought. Yeah, it certainly, certainly gives you a challenge, doesn't it? Now, that, that original hierarchy 
you know, don't, or, well, actually, we'll move on to the question of whether it's a hierarchy and what that, that might mean. But, you know, you start out by saying, look, let's, let's take the idea that there are five. And you say, but, but nevertheless, you know, that, that, that idea is two and a half thousand years old. You know, how, how robust is it? I mean, you do use it as a sort of analytical framework, but I wonder whether that's, that's because it's, it's convenient and it's what people can understand or whether there is a useful distinction to be made. Look, I think as a starting point for understanding the senses, then I think the, the five senses paradigm works you know, quite well. They're, they're all familiar to us, those major five. But really, once we expand and, and, and try and lift our understanding above the commonplace to try and really appreciate the world and all of its sensory wonders, then, yeah, we have to look beyond the five. There are innumerable, almost, other senses that we barely even think about. And then there are other sort of kind of caveats to think that, you know, we, we, we talk about touch and we think about it as one sense. And yet touch really is a collaboration between a number of different senses that all come together to give us our really quite exquisite sense of touch. You know, where does pain fit in with touch? It's not really the same. Our sense of balance, we might think it's less important than vision, but try living without it. You know, I mean, so really... If we're going to understand the way that each of us perceive the world, we, we have to broaden our, our horizons. But at the same time, ultimately, we have to draw all of these different strands together, just like the brain does, and to show how they all interact to form our, our perceptions. Well, maybe let's start with sight, which is normally kind of placed very much at the top of things. And you know, you, you make that your, your opening one-sense chapter. You talk fascinatingly to me about how sight human sight, we think it's great, but actually it's profoundly constrained by its evolutionary history. And there are all sorts of ways where, you know, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't have started from here in the first place. <laughs> it really is, I guess, what in evolutionary uh, biology we talk about as, as bricolage. In, in a sense, we, our sense of sight really is a bit borrowed from over here, another piece borrowed from over there, brought together to form this wondrous sense, you know, that Things that, that we can experience visually are truly extraordinary. But yeah, it really is a cobbled together piece of biological engineering. No sane designer would ever design a visual system in the way that ours has, has evolved. So yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And it is, in many ways, flawed. Part of that is, to give you an analogy, I guess, a bit like when you're trying to watch a video on, on YouTube or, or, or what have you when your internet connection is slow and it keeps stopping and reloading and starting. This is the problem essentially the brain has with a massive inflow of visual information. It has to make sense of in, in real time or something close to it. It does get stuck on things. So, you know, there's, the brain is making mistakes with, with visual information. And even just the apparatus of the eye. There's argument now about, you know, whether our, our back-to-front retinas aren't actually a better solution to a difficult problem than, than we first thought. But still, the apparatus of the eye is, is not what you would design were we to be designing it from scratch. Yeah, and, and also you talk about how, which kind of fascinated me, that the, the spectrum that we can see, which as we know is obviously drastically less than that of many, many animals, it's been shaped by the fact that we used to live in the water. Absolutely, yeah. So the eye originally evolved in aquatic animals now you know anybody who's ever let's say cut themselves when when they're swimming in relatively deep water will be surprised by the fact that they appear to be bleeding green 
So the way that water filters a lot of colors out gives a particular color scape underwater. And so since the eye evolved underwater, it's, it evolved to you know, account for the colors that are present there. We can, of course, see red, just as you can see red in shallow water, but there are many different parts of the spectrum which are filtered out by water. So, you know, we're left with this, this kind of, this evolutionary throwback, which originally developed and evolved to, to be able to see colours underwater. So, yeah, it, it, we, we still have that. And, and similarly, we have, amongst mammals, actually, a pretty good sense of sight, or visual sense. But really, our own mammalian line evolved as little scurrying nocturnal things which desperately were trying not to be a dinosaur's dinner. And so many mammals still carry the hallmarks of that from 65 plus million years ago where, you know, these animals were running around in the dark where vision and colours were relatively less important. Now, I guess you could say that we're lucky as, as primates. We're one of the most, in terms of colour vision at least, one of the most gifted uh, lineages of mammals. And we've evolved the ability to see a greater range of colours than most mammals. I mean, I refer to the, the dog chasing a red ball, which certainly doesn't look red necessarily to it. But, you know, we, we've, I guess, developed this capacity potentially as a means to see ripening fruit. And that's one of the theories, at least, that makes us stand out amongst other mammals. And, and how about this question, which, you know, I mean, it's like it goes back to Gladstone's commentary on the <laughs> Iliad, Iliad, but... You know, you, you also mentioned the, the uh, sort of mid-century academic controversy over Benjamin Whorf's findings and the kind of so-called Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, that how we perceive the world, and in particular how we perceive colour, is determined by our language or shaped by it. Can you talk about how how truthful that is? I mean, I know the Russians have a distinction between, you know, Silni and Golorboy or whatever it is, but do people see colour differently according to which language they speak? Isn't that a fascinating idea? So yeah, just to, I guess, pray that for your, for your listeners, the, the idea here is that the language that we learn, the, the frames of reference that we learn in early life, ultimately determine what it is that we can see, it determines the colours that we can see, it sets a frame of reference for all of that. Then again, the polarised opposite of that is that language follows from what we can see. And the truth, it seems, lies somewhere in between. So what we find is that you know, we make in the English language and in most European languages, we make clear distinctions between, let's say, blue and green, let's say. We kind of understand, assuming that we're not colourblind, we instinctively understand what somebody means by green and by blue. So we've, we've parceled up and chopped up the, the spectrum in a particular way linguistically. There are other cultures, other societies out there which don't quite chop up the spectrum in the same way. That means that there are some cultures where they may refer to grass as being, in effect, blue, or they may refer to a kind of greeny colour in the same terms as they would refer to, to yellow and don't really see a distinction between it. And so there are, I guess the, the, the take-home message from all of that is that there is more than one way to see the world, even in terms of colour. So what we take for granted, what's given to us, by our linguistic framework, isn't the same across all cultures. And other cultures see the distinctions between colours in different ways. So in your particular instance there, I think you were referring to the, the idea that, you know, the Russians have uh, in their language words which mean that they see light blue and dark blue as two very, very different colours. 
or at least two different colours, let's say. And we find that strange, and yet we don't find it at all strange that we have different words for light red and darker red, you know, pink and red. We, we think of them as being relatively different things. So we are, you know, shaped by our, our, our cultural surroundings and by our, our, our language to a, a greater extent than perhaps we realise, even when it comes down to recognising colours. And I find that just fascinating. Do the, the colours that we first glom onto, you know, we red obviously is very important to us, I guess, because blood, because ripe fruit, because... There is a sort of hierarchy or, you know, of when we started to pay attention to colours. Is that right? I mean, you have the extraordinary detail that the idea of orange only enters the culture in the early 16th century. It's so interesting, all of this stuff. So I guess the, the, the first part of your, your question really goes to the fact that, that some colours are relatively more important than others. And there was some fascinating research that's been done on this that has looked at the number of different colour terms across languages across the globe. And where, you know, we have a number of different colour terms. We, in the English language, neither particularly rich nor particularly depauperate in terms of the number of terms that we use to describe different colours. But there are some cultures where they have relatively few colour terms. And I guess one of the interesting things is that even if they don't particularly have a word for, let's say, I don't know, brown or, you know, turquoise, all languages have got a, a colour term for red. It tends to be... All, all languages have colour terms for white, for black, and then for red as the third member of the colour club, if you like. So that's, that's one element. Red is particularly biologically salient, as you say, you know, potentially the colour of ripening fruit, but perhaps more importantly, it's a, it's a common danger signal. It's the colour of injury, of, of bleeding, of warning, and all sorts of things like that. So, yeah, red is particularly important, more important than, than many of the other colours we may come up against, and accordingly we can recognise it very, very clearly. Um, until relatively recently, when we were describing something as being orange, we referred to it clumsily as yellow-red, or we referred to it as saffron, and then suddenly this exotic new fruit appears on the market, what the Spanish called naranja, and, and, and what we ultimately started to refer to as oranges. And it's from the fruit that we get the colour. So suddenly we now have a term for this particular colour. It's bizarre to think that we ever had a language in which orange didn't appear. But it's the reason that we refer to people with orange hair as redheads. It's the reason we refer to uh, robins as having red breasts when they're very distinctly more orange than red, at least in my eye. But perhaps you see it differently. I guess that's the whole point of it, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Now, also... I mean, maybe this is a point about physics rather than about perception, but it, it was something I hadn't known. You say that there are, you know, we think of colours, you know, as behaving in, in one way, but there's, there's a difference between, I think you call them additive colours and sort of colours that, that are beamed as light and colours that are reflected light, if I'm getting that right. Exactly, yeah, and that's that's the tricky thing. I remember being in a, in a pub quiz some years ago when the question was asked, what are the, what are the three primary colours? And, of course... Everybody in the room immediately writes down red, yellow, blue. Because those are the primary colours that people think about when they, they call back to their primary school days. If you're to mix all of those, mix those colours together, you get the secondary colours and so on and so forth. It actually turns out that even if you use that scheme, it's not really red, yellow and blue, but cyan, uh, yellow and magenta. But what we're talking about when we're talking about the colours of light is 
again, different. So the three primary colours of light are red, blue and green. So all colours can be made from those things. And that's why, you know, if you get a tiny speck of water on your iPhone screen or what have you, you see these tiny little pixels uh, of these three colours, which are the three that are mixed to provide all the colours that we see because we're seeing from a direct light source. So even the things that we kind of take for granted as foundational knowledge when we're talking about things of, in terms of colours, the foundations seem somewhat shaky when we start digging. But nevertheless, that to me makes things just more fascinating rather than just making them more complicated and, and, and frustrating. So I guess that's the way my mind works. So, so speaking of, of your phones, you do have a useful piece of advice there. You say that the, the physiological effects of light perception explain why it's a very bad idea to be scrolling on Twitter before bed, not just the, the fact it'll drive you into rage. Exactly. So there are light-sensitive proteins in and around your head, primarily, and these are scattered throughout the bodies of many, many animals and even plants, or versions of them are. And these particular proteins respond very, very strongly to light at the blue end of the spectrum. And when they become excited, when they see blue light, the originally, I guess, the, one of the original evolutionary reasons for this was to tell our body that it's becoming light. It starts to reset our biological clock and it activates as it gets us ready for the day. If we're lying in bed looking at an iPhone screen, which is often relatively blue light, it's activating these particular proteins. And essentially, they'll be telling the part of your brain that, that regulates your circadian rhythms, that there's something amiss, that it looks actually pretty much like dawn in the, this ancient part of our brain. And so as a result, there'll be some element of fighting against your, your, your sort of natural tiredness at the end of the day. And yet the messages that you're getting are you know, contradicting this to some extent and, and potentially will stave off the tiredness that that you need to feel in order to fall asleep. So, yeah, that another, another fascinating aspect of it. And I guess the, the other aspect of that is that it gives us an insight into really where vision in its first kind of biological iterations came from in the first place. You know, we see these simple proteins and versions of them in the simplest of animals and in plants and all sorts of things. So we can start to see where our incredible eyes potentially had their origins. Well, we'll we'll have to move on. I could spend the whole time asking you about asking about vision, but David Bowie points the way. We need to look at sound as well. The, the kind of standout bit in that chapter is that plants can hear. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is when when people review the book, uh, members of the public review the book, often they will write in and they'll say that they'll make their comments and you know, touch wood. Generally, they're they're pretty positive, but something sometimes people say is that, oh yeah, I I, I kind of knew that. This is one of the things that you've just referred to now that I had no idea about and which I found absolutely fascinating and why I find writing such a rewarding process. Because what you're referring to here is some amazing experiments that were done on plants. And the plants in this case were, were grown in sort of Y-shaped tubes where the stem of the plant is in the stem of the Y. And then the roots grow down into the two bifurcated parts of that Y. So they can go either to the left or to the right. And what the experimenters did was to produce the sound of water on one side. And amazingly enough, the roots tended to grow towards the water. There was no extra moisture in the soil. 
there was no way for the plants to access the water, but the sound of running water caused the roots to grow towards the sound of that water. So even plants which have no ears can in some sense pick up vibrations, which is ultimately what hearing is, and, you know, adapt their behaviour accordingly. Moreover, they can hear when a, a caterpillar is chewing their leaves. I, I say hear. They, they, they can pick up the vibrations associated with the actions of a caterpillar hungrily eating away at leaves and accordingly can invest their leaves with all kinds of anti-caterpillar defences. They can even hear the sound of pollinating insects and can then potentially increase the level of, of sugar rewards in their flowers. It's... We tend to think relatively close to home when we're talking, thinking of frames of reference for the senses, but it's amazing to see the extraordinary diversity out there in the, in the organismal world. One of the things that, that strikes me very curious about that, and maybe you've got a, an explanation or a sense of the direction of inquiry, you know, as you set out very eloquently through the whole book, the interpretation of these incredibly complex and sophisticated signals is, is the work of the brain, which your plants don't have. That, I mean, it's you know, you can see how there could be a rudimentary response, I guess, in some sort of biochemical mechanism to a vibration or any vibration, but to a specific vibration, to the sound of a caterpillar or the tinkle of running water. How do we think plants are doing that? The simple answer, I'm afraid, is to be bold enough to say that I don't know, and it's actually not well known by anyone as far as I know. It's one of those quirks that really we, we need to be able to work out. I mean, all sound is, of course, is vibration passing through a medium. Perhaps there is some kind of means by which a particular frequency of vibration causes some kind of... Well, naturally, it does cause some kind of response, but how that, how that happens, I simply don't know, and I'm not sure anybody does. Well, I mean, talking again about the brain, really striking findings you have in that, that chapter on sound is that a rise of what? 10 decibels or something in the background noise if children are in a classroom has a really shockingly drastic effect on their ability to learn. You know, it's why obviously you want the children at the back to shut up. I mean, is that just to do with sort of cognitive load that your brain is working too hard to try and filter out the background noise? That's exactly it, Sam. Yeah, so your, your brain is constantly trying to attend to multiple uh, simultaneous streams of information. You know, as, as we're talking here, we've got vision, smells, touch, we've got all sorts of things going on. The, the brain is tuned in to the conversation that we're having. But if at the same time there was some music in an adjoining room or, or some traffic noise right outside my room where I'm sat now here in Sydney, then my brain would be devoting just that fraction less of its attention towards this conversation. And it's simply that. The brain has a limited bandwidth, you know, to cope with the different inputs. And as soon as you start to reduce the bandwidth that's available for the important things that children have to attend to at school, then there are consequences for that. And, and you know, that is, the, the impact of that is rather more dramatic than we might expect. You know, there are substantial effects on children's learning progress, even when you account for all of the other potential variables to do with socioeconomic status, etc. even when you account for all of that, just the level of noise that uh, the children are exposed to as they learn, particularly in their early learning environment, it can have a se severe effect on their, on their outcomes. Is this much understood in policymaking circles? I mean, do we have some clever sparks in the Department of Education thinking, you know, 
is she noise cancelling head- headphones on the NHS or whatever? It may be understood it's not being acted upon. And it's a relatively simple solution, which I guess is, is what makes it all the sadder. But to the best of my knowledge, I'm not aware of that schools around the world are adopting any kind of noise reduction strategies. Even though, you know, even if that was just to muffle a rattling window or, or to ideally, I guess, to, to double glaze those windows in some way. It's not something which has risen to the top of the agenda. But then again, I guess to give them their dues, this is relatively recently published research. So perhaps, you know, there'll be a groundswell of opinion that will cause those policymakers to change their views on this. It is an important issue. Now, how much is sound, I and mean, we think of, you know, you hear things through your ears. That's not the whole story, is it? No, exactly. So I use the example of, of Beethoven, who it's said that to be able to register the sounds of his compositions in later life when he was going deaf, if not had already gone deaf, he would use a tuning fork held in his mouth, contacting the piano, and would feel the vibrations through his skull, through his jawbone, through his skull, in some sense, hear it in a way which was allowed him to continue to compose. Many animals do the same thing. Our bizarre Heath Robinson contraption of of ear bones, let's say, which tiny little bones in our ears which communicate sound along this chain of little ossicles, as we call them. This is an amazing, if bizarre, solution to the the problem of hearing, but many animals don't have this same kind of auditory chain of command inside their ears, and so they they rely on alternative methods. And some, for for instance, like snakes, will, when they're listening out for their prey scurrying around, will rest their jaws on the ground and will essentially hear through those jaws. Elephants are one of the most fascinating examples of this because they communicate in infrasound for a large proportion of their communication. This infrasound is below what we can hear. It's, it's a sound that's so bass that we don't pick it up. But sounds, anybody who's lived next door to somebody who like, likes to really ramp up the bass on a, on a party evening will know that bass travels a long way. And when the elephants are making a noise, their communication travels a long way, but it travels through the earth. And so effectively what the elephants tend to do in this situation is they listen through their feet. The, feet get, the, the, the sound is transmitted through the earth, is picked up by their feet, and is then, then transmitted up into their skull where essentially they hear it. So again, this, I guess, demonstrates the variety of different solutions to sensory problems that have been adopted in the animal kingdom. And if we're tr- to try and gain an insight into how different animals perceive their world, then... then you know, looking at the different strategies they, they use is, is one means of doing exactly that. There's an extraordinary anecdote in the book, book about somebody who lost their sight, and this obviously thrilled the teenage Daredevil fan in me, and learned to navigate through sound, sort of not quite echolocate, but something like it. Yeah, so this, I was very fortunate when my last book came out that some people got in touch with me from London. These wonderful people got in touch with me, and the guy that got in touch with me, Ricky, He's been blind since, he, since his early 20s, but he's learned, as many blind people do, to use his ears as a means of navig- navigating the world and to make up the shortfall caused by his loss of sight. And so what Ricky does, and what many blind people or visually challenged people do, is to look for sound shadows in their environment. So the way that sounds bend around or are blocked out by different structures in the environment, just slight changes in the soundscape 
allow them to navigate, you know, through different environments in, in a what seems to those of us who've never used this approach seems to be almost superhuman. But when I put that to Ricky, actually, his response was very, very straightforward. He, he, he says that we can all do it, but simply those of us who are regularly sighted by and large don't tend to use this approach. It's something we can do, but we don't. So, yeah, the, the anecdote I referred to is when Ricky was visiting some relations and the child of these relations wanted to sort of test Ricky, I guess, and wanted to see if he could find him in an open field, and, and Ricky was able to demonstrate that that was very, very simple for him to be able to find this child who was standing stock still in a field simply by an approach, you know, these sound shadows. Which is extraordinary. I mean, if there's another example, maybe later on to one of these, a form of sense that we think of animals as having and us as not, which I guess is sort of sensing the Earth's magnetic field. And you say that under the right circumstances, you drive homing pigeons off to Scotland, turn them around hundreds of times and say face home and they'll get it right. So here's the thing. There has been a number of different studies looking for the ability of humans to be able to register and to respond to uh, appropriately the magnetic field of the Earth. And there were some experiments done in the 1970s, I think, whereby, as you described, Students were loaded onto coaches, I think from Manchester University, and driven out onto the moors while blindfolded. They were driven in, you know, by circuitous routes around in circles and what have you to try and disorientate them even further. And when they were loaded off the coaches in the middle of the, the, the moors, they were then asked to point the way home. And quite amazingly, they did so within a tolerance which was remarkable, <laughs> almost making homing pigeons of the students. However, that same ability seemed to be lost when some of the students had magnets sort of fastened to their foreheads at the same time that they were blindfolded. So there's an intriguing idea that perhaps this is something that we're capable of. But it has to be said that even after these amazing results were published, a number of different follow-up studies looked at the same question and got somewhat different results. Now, the original author of the, the Manchester study pointed out, in fairness, that actually if you were to combine all of the results across all of these studies, there is still some evidence that we are more accurate than, than simple random chance would dictate, and that perhaps we do have this ability. Certainly, if you look inside our skulls, there are, just like as in many migrating animals, there are tiny particles of iron which respond in an excited way to the magnetic field of the Earth. So, it seems possible that we have the apparatus in place to be able to register this field. But what we don't have, there's no evidence that we have as things stand, is the communication between those and the brains that would require us to be able to actually navigate by, by magnetoception. So it's something of an open question. I think by and large the consensus is that we can't. But, you know, there's just enough doubt there to suggest that you know, we may perhaps just about be able to still do it. Now, dogs also can, but they put that to a very unusual use in what, what, what is surely the silliest experiment this book contains. Exactly. I loved it. It had to go in. I, I first became aware of this from a conference in Prague, and, and one of the organisers of this conference, a Czech professor, he'd made it his life's work to examine how animals respond to the magnetic field of the Earth. 
but one of his most madcap experiments, <laughs> I don't know how he came up with this idea, was to look at dogs as they were going for a poop in the park. And what he found was that they aligned on, on a north-south axis. It didn't matter whether their head was pointing north and their bum was pointing south or vice versa. They pointed along this axis to a vastly greater degree than would be dictated by chance. Why he looked at that in particular, I'm still not sure. I'm delighted he did because it makes a fabulous anecdote. But in common with so many different animals, there's all kinds of evidence that they tend to, when they're performing particular behaviours, align themselves north-south or south-north. Why they would be doing it, I'm really not sure. But the alternative explanations for this have been thoroughly examined. For instance, you know, the direction of the prevailing wind is one obvious one. That doesn't explain it. And also, equally intriguingly, when animals are near you know, high-powered cables, such as the overhead cables, electricity pylons carry, then this tendency of theirs to align on, on these axes seems to disappear. So the disturbance in the field caused by them seems to wipe out this ability. So it really does seem that an awful lot of animals use this sense that they have for some degree of guidance, although why dogs would need to do it when they go to the toilet is, is another matter entirely. He did, by the, he did, by the way, win the Ig Nobel Prize for that, which is a, a satirical award. That's extraordinary. I mean, if you if you're lost in the woods, could you use a shitting dog as a compass? <laughs> Do you know what? If 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 all else fails, then then maybe I I think I'd probably just just follow the dog rather, rather than take a bearing on its bottom. <laughs> Which leads neatly on to taste and smell. But about we, we our smell tends to get a bad rap, doesn't it? Humans are seen as being bad at it. It's seen as being the least refined of all the senses. You you slightly argue against that. Absolutely. Well, this is an idea which seems to have its roots in the age of the Enlightenment, whereby visual observation of things, direct evidence collection, collection particularly by, by vision, but also by our hearing, was really accorded the most respect. Um, and for reasons that we can kind of appreciate and understand, you know, these are the main senses by which we interrogate the world. Smell by contrast is much more vague in terms of how we describe what it is that we're smelling. We, we often have to refer to another object. You know, we, we could say something smells kind of lemony, but we don't particularly have a word that, that would distinguish that particular smell other than to relate it to the smell of a lemon, let's say. And the same can be said for almost any smell that we, we can perceive. There are, some, you know, there are some exceptions to this rule. We might, might use the term musty or, or musky or you know, fragrant, but in and of themselves those words don't really mean anything. So that gives us the idea that since, again, we don't really have a linguistic framework for it, that smell is vague and inchoate and difficult to measure. In addition, the fact that so many animals rely on smell gave scientists in the 18th and 19th centuries in particular this idea that, that smell was an animalistic sense, one that we'd risen, risen above. And I guess another nail in the coffin of smell, at least at that time, was that we had the idea that disease came from things that smelt bad. You know, malaria is one obvious example of that. Malaria, like you know, bad air, bad smell. So we kind of thought of ourselves as being perhaps a little too good to, for, for, a, for a sense of smell. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that to the animals to have, and we're going to rely on our, our other senses. And, and indeed, scientists for centuries, really, de dedicated themselves to demonstrating just what a poor sense of smell we have. 
And yet that really isn't the case. In the last half century or so, there's been a real renaissance in our appreciation of our sense of smell. It's nothing like as bad as we sometimes have it portrayed to us. In fact, our sense of smell is really uniquely sophisticated. It's amongst our senses. It's said that we can, we can determine at least one trillion different smells, which is an extraordinary number. And that gives us you know, the, the ability to discriminate more different smells than we can discriminate different colours or different tones, for instance. And so our sense of smell is far from being the poor relation. It's just something that we've come to, you know, we, we have this received wisdom that, that our sense of smell is relatively poor and weak and, and second rate. It really isn't. And there are many cultures around the world, in fact, once you start looking beyond the West, who really re rejoice in their sense of smell and really value their sense of smell. And, you know, they're... they're annual calendar is set by the different smells that occur throughout the year, wherever they live. And they also are able to follow odour trails throughout their environment. And they seem to us to be almost superhuman in this ability. But really all it boils down to us, and this is the same for all of our senses, is that if we train our senses, if we listen to our senses and dedicate some time to trying to improve them, we can achieve things which seem utterly impossible. It's really... I think one of the most fascinating things that I, I researched in the course of this book. We're also not completely in control. I mean, one of the things which maybe is a reason for us to mistrust smells, as you describe it, certain smells, the presence of certain smells, can profoundly affect our behaviour. I mean, you say if you pipe citrus scent into an auction house, you know, it'll have an even greater effect on people's willingness to bid than the presence of Lord Archer. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So this is something, of course, that uh, marketers have been uh, really experimenting on. You know, we, we have this idea, we, we have certain associations in our brain, let's say with lemon and the sense of cleanliness. There's very little that is added to a cleaning product by putting lemon in it. And yet, if you go to the supermarket and look at cleaning products, a very large proportion of those will feature these fruits, the citrus fruits, lemon in particular, on their labels. That's nothing to do with the cleaning ability of the, of the, the product in question, but it's really just tapping into our association of this particular smell with cleanliness. So we have positive associations with smell, which means that, as you say, you know, when citrus smells are piped into an auction room, people bid 10, 20, 30% higher because it seems to put us in a good mood. Probably most people have heard of the old canard about, you know, if you want to sell your home, then brew some fresh coffee. When people are coming to look around, bake some bread. These are all very positive smell associations we have. And rather more troublingly, I guess, at the other end of the spectrum, when we smell things which are distinctly unpleasant, this actually gives us an even stronger response, but in a negative way. So if we smell something which is perhaps redolent of uncleanliness, disease, things like that, then... This doesn't just kind of disgust us. This also profoundly changes our patterns of judgment such, like, such that we become more unpleasant in our attitudes to other people. We become more aloof from other people. We make all kinds of judgments ab about them. And so, yeah, I think one of, one of the fascinating things about the senses is the way that not only is each sense, you know, intrinsically interesting in and of itself, 
It also profoundly influences and is influenced by the other senses and also our own thoughts. Yeah, you said that, which, which surprised me because I, I, again, had it as one of those nuggets of received wisdom that smell is really important in sexual attraction, that we have pheromones and so forth. You say pheromones have absolutely no effect on sexual behaviour. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. I think in, you know, the pheromonal communication is really widespread amongst mammals and amongst many other animals as well. But there's no evidence has yet been collected which conclusively demonstrates that humans are capable of detecting pheromones or responding to pheromones. We're not set up in that particular way, it seems. There have been a number of studies which kind of gently imply that possibly, you know, there, there are chinks in this argument, but as things stand, no, we, we, we don't detect pheromones. That doesn't mean that we don't respond to the smell of other people, and often we respond to the smell of other people very, very positively. You know, I, as, as part of writing this book, I, I did a, my own kind of straw poll amongst uh, some of the students here with the help of, of one of my own students. And the subjects of this particular poll were all young heterosexual women, and, and they were describing just how incredibly important the, the smell of a potential partner is to them in, in making the decision about you know, whether this person is, is attractive. Smell is a fundamental part of their calculations. And that's not particularly surprising. You know, we, we are governed by more senses than, than simply, you know, vision and, and hearing the, the look and the sound of someone. Smell does play a really important role, although we may not be quite so immediately aware of it. You say that, that for women it's very, very important, particularly. One of the kind of startling and maybe quite controversial things in this book is you say women's senses, on the whole, are much superior to men's. Does it mean, just to step casually onto the third rail of the culture wars, that biological sex is real? <laughs> wow. OK, well, this is, gonna, this is a minefield which I'll tiptoe through. So the sensory capabilities of people vary massively, and there is a huge overlap between men and women. That said, by and large, women have a better sense of smell than men. Women have a better sense of taste than men also. And... The reason for those two seems to be relatively straightforward to explain. It's because women, by and large, carry children. And it's extremely important, obviously, whilst they've got a, a sensitive, delicate fetus inside them, that they are particularly hyper-conscious of any potential dangers to that fetus that might enter their body through their diet. And this is given further credence by the fact that women's sense of smell, when pregnant, tends to be turbocharged. In terms of vision, it really does seem that women have a better sense of colour vision than men. So, you know, I used to work in a, a wallpaper and paint shop and the number of times that I witnessed arguments between husband and wife when they were choosing what colour, but there were too many to name. But really, in this case, the women do have the, the, the better eye for the colours in the sense that they're able to distinguish fine differences between colours. Men, of course, can see the colours, but perhaps not to the gradation that women can. Women have a better sense of touch, although that's nothing to do with any of the evolutionary arguments that I described before. That's simply to do with having, by and large, smaller hands. If they've got the same number of nerve endings crammed into the same, to, to a smaller area, it, it just means that they're, those smaller hands, by and large, give them a more sensitive sense of touch. 
There is one area in which men seem to be better equipped than, than women across the senses, and that's in terms of motion detection and vision. So men seem to be able to detect small changes in the visual field better than women. Again, to reiterate, the overlap is gigantic, but rather just so flavoured evolutionary argument for why these differences in vision occur between men and women is sometimes said to relate to our hunter-gatherer origins. So if the women were, were primarily doing the gathering, they were collecting fruit, they needed to be more on top of which fruits were ripe and accordingly, you know, it would reward them to be able to be able to detect ripeness, which primarily detected by colour, means that they, you know, they would profit from having better colour vision and that would give them an evolutionary advantage, whereby the men who were doing the hunting needed to be, you know, very conscious of, of small movements of, of prey animals. You know, that sounds like a really nice story. I think it's a little convenient to pin everything down to that. But yeah, it, it really is, it's a fascinating area and it's, as you say, an enormously fraught topic to, to discuss as things stand. But I think I'd probably emphasise the fact that there's a huge amount of overlap between us. But, you know, if you're going shopping for paint and you're a man going with your female partner, I'd probably give way to their sense on this one. There are lots of reasons for doing that, as I've discovered in the past years. <laughs> Question of taste. This is a really complex kind of particular thing, because we think, you know, there's, there's so much going on there you talk about. Can you break down a bit how taste comes about and why it's more than just, you know, and we know smell and taste are linked, but there's also, you talk about something called chemestis and, you know, what, what, what comes together to give us our sense of taste? So... You know, everybody's familiar with the idea of taste buds on your tongue, these little amalgamations of sensitive cells which detect the presence of sugar or salt, or, you know, bitter or sour, or the last one which joined the club, which was umami, a kind of savouriness. This is a relatively limited palate from which we can, you know, drag out the idea of flavour. And so, you know, it's been known for an awfully long time that a lot of what we call flavour, and which we actually experience in our mouth, is a job done by our nose. So this is the kind of chimney of our mouth, the, the retronasal apparatus that we have, which is essentially, as we chew, volatile chemical smells go up from our mouth, the back way, into our noses, and our nose gives us a, a perception of that smell, which weirdly we register in our mouths. So, you know, Anybody who's had a cold or, you know, sadly enough, COVID will know that, you know, once you, your, your sense of smell is hopefully in the short term compromised, then a lot of your sense of taste leaves with it. Myself, I lost my sense of smell or largely lost my, my sense of smell some little while ago. And, and accordingly, my ability to taste things is, is really compromised. So... What we think of as taste, or at least as flavour perception, is really such a multifaceted thing. Taste itself only accounts for a tiny proportion of our flavour perception. And then we get these other ideas, which you kind of referred to there, which it's possible that we have specific detectors for kind of chalky calcium-type materials. Another idea that we have the ability to detect fats or fatty acids, 
So these are specific kind of receptors in our, mouth, in our mouths, in our taste buds, which detect these specific things. And I think that's really fascinating. So there is a reluctance amongst in, <laughs> in the field of science to, to try and to, to just jump on any old bandwagon that comes along. And so in that sense, it was a long time before umami, this, this sense of savouriness was really fully accepted as a member of the flavour club. Or, or as the taste, or, or another one you taste. chucked in. <laughs> well, yeah, well, exactly. So, but there, there are a number of different potential f- tastes which are jostling for acceptance into this particular group. And I think the coming years will see something of a, re- a, a revolution in our understanding of, of taste. I mean, kokumi, you said, I was just getting used to umami. Exactly. You've now got kokumi to deal with as well. So, th- this is, I guess. It would, it would speak mostly to, to what we would think of as, as kind of like a mouthfeel. <laughs> it's very difficult to describe a sense. You know, I, I, I would struggle, let's say, even to describe the smell of coffee. So it's difficult to tell you really what kukumi is. But, but yeah, I, I think the sort of satisfying mouthfeel that we get in terms of our sense of taste, that's what, where kukumi comes in. I think what it, what it demonstrates is, is not just how complex and how ever-changing the field of the senses is, but also, remarkably, you know, we, we can detect gravitational waves in space, we can do all kinds of amazing things in the realm of the sciences, but we don't know how our sense of smell works. We really don't have the definitive answer for that. The same is true to a large extent about our sense of taste, indeed about any of our senses. We don't have a full understanding of how basic sensations are translated into perceptions. And that is going to be a fascinating challenge for the years going forward, you know, as we move from sensation to perception. And then ultimately, one hopes, you know, we get from perception to consciousness, the, the real lodestar, the, the centre of, of our existence. Now, just before we finish up, I want to touch on touch. As you, you, you describe very well and explain how the, you know, the sort of Merkel cells and these different cells register, you know, pressure and movement and pain and so forth. Again, striking to me, because I hadn't known about it, you said there are two different types of touch, which are neurologically different. Exactly. So, you know, we have very fast kind of high-speed internet cables in our bodies which register all sorts of important touch to our brains. And that's really, I guess, what we think of that's what we've come, become accustomed to think of when we think of touch. You know, we register when we stub our toe on a, on, on a step that we didn't see or we brush against a chair, we, we register this. But there is another kind of touch. And actually, although relative to the high-speed nervous apparatus which translates the previously described form of touch to our brains, these kind of fibres operate like little country back roads and travel much more slowly to the brain, and yet there are far, far more of them, and they potentially are more important. These are fibres which respond to us being touched by another person. We may be caressed in a, in a slow, gentle and loving way, and it's incredibly important. It, it really activates some... It really opens up our brains to all kinds of reward and, and pleasure in a way that we really hadn't appreciated, or if we had, we'd kind of snickered at it and thought of it as being a, a really, you know... A, kind of fun but not scientifically important and yet recent research has suggested just how important these afferent fibers are to our our well-being and actually this is something which really was highlighted during the the lockdowns of the pandemic that 
for many people, our ability to touch and to be touched was, if not severely compromised, then at least somewhat restricted. And, you know, we may be thinking that's relatively unimportant in the bigger scheme of things, but people have now been talking lately about touch starvation and just how fundamentally important it has been for people to to recover that lost sense of touch wherever they could when you know the lockdowns ended and we were able to be in physical contact with each other again i'm not really talking here in a, in a in a sexual or salacious way but actually simply being caressed by another human being is an incredibly important thing for us and and body is really set up our, our nervous apparatus is really set up and is really attuned to this kind of touch and it's it's an extremely powerful and rewarding sense and one that our brain really <laughs> really releases some pretty powerful chemicals to, to encourage us to do it more. Yeah. Now we have a, as you set out, we have a kind of hierarchy, cultural hierarchy of senses. Do we also have, if you like, a neurological hierarchy of senses? Do our brains prioritise the information from one sense or another? The, the answer in a political and frustrating way is yes and no. It depends very much on the, on the context. So our brains, the brains of humans are, at least in sensory terms, really geared up for vision. You know, we have a higher proportion of our brain is given over to interpreting visual input than all of the other senses combined. At least that's our understanding. But rather than going from that to say that sight is more important than all the other senses combined, that isn't really what it's, what it's saying. The, the brain has to deal with levels of complexity in visual processing, which aren't necessarily there in the other senses. So it needs more apparatus to be able to understand the visual signals. What the brain has to do when it gets mixed messages is to try and work out which is more important, to try and determine which is the salient sensory cue and which is the incorrect or, or less valid one. And it does that extremely well, but it doesn't do it perfectly. And that's where sensory illusions come in. Um, there are any number of them out there, of course. One of them is this, this idea that if you watch somebody's mouth whilst a different soundtrack is played over it, the simple act of watching the mouth movement of the person that you're looking at will shape what you hear. And so in this sense, vision seems to be dominant over, over hearing. But it isn't always quite as simple as that, you know. The brain is pretty good at working out which of the senses it should be, to use an unfortunate term, I guess, in this context, listening to. And it's a really good problem solver, but not flawless, which is where the illusions come in and how we can you know, try, try and resolve the actions of the brain. But really, our work in this respect is, is really in its infancy. It's the exceptions, I guess, that prove the rule in terms of the brain's processing. And it's, a really, it's going to be a really fascinating journey to work out exactly how the brain does this. Now, finally, I just want to ask you, which is, you know, you've talked about how understanding the senses is going to help us to approach the final, you know, the hard problem of consciousness. Obviously, through history, there have been kind of philosophical models of human perception that sort of posit us as a, you know, little creature, you know, a brain, a consciousness, that's getting information from the outside world through the senses as if it's receiving letters or you know watching things on a cinema screen or whatever. Is that the model that's useful to work with or is it 
possible that the senses are, if you like, the whole shebang. In input feedback mechanisms, whereby once you've unraveled the senses, there is no I that's separate from them. No, this is the, all, all of our senses are basically represent an integrated whole. You know, when we're discussing the senses, we, we break things down. That's in the nature, I guess, of, of biologists. We, we separate out the different sensory organs. We separate out the different sensory channels and, and ultimately the areas of the brain that attend to these. I think it, it behooves us in the, in the future to try and kind of amalgamate our understanding because it's only through doing that that we really are going to get full understanding. The problem of that, with, with that is that the complexity involved in, in trying to achieve that is almost incalculable. Nevertheless, it's a goal that I think we should aim for. You know, in your analogy there, we were talking about, you know, we sometimes, th those of us who've, at least who've experienced relatively regular sight through our lives, we, we're used to the idea of opening our eyes in the morning and registering everything that's around us pretty much straight away. We don't actually think of the fact that actually this is something that we've learned to do, that our brains have learned to do, to make sense of the world in a way that, you know, that is satisfying to us. There have been a number of, of instances where, and these are really tragic examples, where people have lost their sight very early in their life, before the brain has basically learnt to understand the visual world. So, you know, perhaps they've lost their sight very, very early on in infancy. And then, of course, medical advances occur to the point where these people can have their sight restored. And what a wonderful thing, you might think. And indeed it is. It's, it's a remarkable advance. And yet, for these unfortunate people, their, their sight is restored to them at, at this later point in life. For the first time, as adults at least, they see, or at least they get light going into their eyes. But their brains can't make head or tail of it. It's just a confusing whirl of different patterns and colours and, and what have you. So they're not seeing the world as, as perhaps those of us who are fortunate enough to have been blessed with sight right from the start would see it. Nothing to them makes sense. So it's not like, say, turning on a TV and immediately you get this image, in, but, you know, the neural equivalent of that. Sight is something, vision is something we have to learn to do. And that really is the fascinating thing. The senses aren't about sensory organs on their own. They're not about the nervous communication that occurs within our bodies or about the brain on its own. They are an amazing collaboration. We couldn't see quite as well, for instance, if in infancy we didn't explore things almost indefatigably with our hands by doing that as, as we crawl across the floor in infancy. We're gauging the 3D world around us. We're parameterizing our vision even as we feel things, and vice versa. You know, we're parameterizing our touch into working out how, how things feel and what they look like. And, and so the senses are, you know, intertwined, interwoven. And the true answer to our, what seems a singular sense of perception has such complex origins. It's going to be a hell of a challenge to try and untangle this and get to the point where we understand it deeply. But for now, the journey is a a really fascinating one, I think. Ashley Ward, thank you very much indeed.